We've got our second Bible reading now, so if you've got a Bible, you can open up. We're going to read Genesis 47, so we'll pick up uh, where we ended before. So Genesis 47. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers, with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here a while, because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability... Put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob into the, in and, the, and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was all gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before you, your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph brought all, bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so that you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favour in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today. 
that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So as we begin, I'm going to pray as, as we consider God's words, so uh, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your graciousness to us in many ways, big and small, but particularly we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son and in your Word. As we consider your Word now, would you be using it to shape us into the image of your Son? We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, sometimes... Waiting isn't easy. I remember as a kid, Christmas time was one of my favourite times each year. I loved the food, the turkey and the potatoes and the soft drink and the desserts. I loved the school holidays, I loved the cricket, I loved the beach. But above it all, I loved the presents. Uh, My love language is gifts. And so it was a time of the year where people were speaking my language. And so it was hard for me to wait for Christmas to come. One year, when I was uh, around 10 or so, I just couldn't wait anymore. And so my brother and I, we snuck downstairs, we snuck up to the Christmas tree when no one was around, we found a gift each, and we had a little bit of a look what was in there. My brother tore a little hole in one of his gifts, and this is what he, um, this is what he found, a crash dummy car. For, I don't know if you're familiar with these, they're pretty old, but uh, for a 10-year-old boy, which is what we were, it was, the, it was the best thing you could think of. And so it looked great, and so I thought to myself, well, I like, a look at, I like the look of that. So I got my, one of my presents, and I tore a little bit of a hole in it. And do you know what I found? Underwear. So, um, yeah, it wasn't quite as good as a crash dummy car, and needless to say, I was a little bit disappointed. And now I did end up getting a crash dummy car as well, but serves me right for not waiting. But sometimes waiting is difficult. And do you know what I've realised? I've realised the better the thing we're waiting for, the harder it is to wait. So it was hard for me as a kid to wait for Christmas to come, but it was even harder for me to wait for my wedding day to come or for Levi's birth to come. The better something is, the harder it is to wait. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but in one sense, the Christian life is a life of waiting. It's a life of now, but not yet. God has saved us now, but we won't experience the fullness, the completeness of that blessing until later. My favourite picture the Bible gives of what that, that waiting, that uh, future is, comes from Revelation chapter 21, and it paints this incredible picture of a place where we'll no longer have to suffer the pain of sickness, where we'll no longer have to suffer the heartbreak of watching a loved one die, where we'll be with God forever, glorifying Him and enjoying Him. That's the future we are promised 
as God's people. But even though we've been promised it, we don't have it yet. And so in a sense, the Christian life is a life of waiting, waiting for that future. And so then the question becomes, well, how do we live while waiting? How do we live while waiting for that promised future? And that's actually the question that Jacob's wrestling with here in Genesis 46 and 47. How is he to live while waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled? See, God has made lots of promises to Jacob's family, in particular to his grandpa, Abraham. Uh, We see those in many chapters in the Bible, Genesis 12, 15, 17. God comes and makes big promises. I don't know if you have a way to remember those promises. I'll tell you what I teach anyone, young and old. This is my way to remember the promises. It's the lob promises. Have you heard that before? Lob, L-O-B. God promised land, a special land for Abraham's descendants to live in. He promised offspring, more kids than stars in the sky. And he promised blessing, that through Abraham's offspring, he would bless the nations. L-O-B, lob. And as we fast forward then to Genesis 46 and 47, Jacob is still waiting for those promises to be ultimately fulfilled. And so he needs to know, how is he to live while waiting? And it's particularly pertinent here because of what's about to happen. At the start of the passage, Jacob and his family are living in the promised land. They are in the land God promised. And yet, they're about to move out of the promised land to go and be with Joseph in Egypt. And so the question Jacob must be thinking here, and perhaps it's the question we're wondering, is, well, did God fail? Did God fail to keep his promises? And so it's as Jacob's perhaps wondering this, that God comes to Jacob and he speaks to Jacob. He says, I'm still the same God that made you those promises. Have a look at verses three and four. This is God speaking. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now, this is a really important part of the story, because this is the first time in the story of Joseph that we've heard God speak. Up until now, we've had to kind of contend ourselves with God's uh, actions being there. We've seen his hand at work, but we haven't heard him speak. And yet here, in this crucial moment, God comes to Jacob and he speaks to Jacob. And he basically says, don't worry, I've got this. I'll be with you and I will keep my promises. And actually, as God speaks, it should remind us of something in Genesis 15. So keep your finger here, but flip back with me to Genesis chapter 15, a couple of pages, maybe 20 pages or so back. Genesis chapter 15, and this is what God says to Abraham, starting at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. Do you see that? Even at one of those key promises, God warns that this is going to happen. 
They're going to leave the land. They'll be gone for 400 years and they'll be enslaved. And so God comes to Jacob and he says, I haven't failed my promises. This is part of my promises, but I will stay faithful to you. And so the first thing we see then about what it means to live well while waiting is that it means trusting what God says. That's what Jacob's to do and it's actually exactly what we're to do as we wait for that future of Revelation 21. We're to trust what God says. It's not always easy, but that's what living well means. And there's so much that God has said, so much that God has promised us. God's promised us eternal life in His Son. In the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God has promised us there's life. And so we trust that. God's also promised us he'll never leave us, that he'll give us a helper, the Holy Spirit. And so we trust that. God has promised us that he's working in all things for our good to be shaped into the image of his son. And so we trust that. And God has promised us that one day he'll wipe away every tear from our eye, that there'll be no more sickness or sadness. And so while we live waiting for that future, we trust that. That's what it looks like to live while we wait. But of course, the question is, well, that sounds good, but how do we do that? Well, it's by listening to God and not our doubts. And when we're facing challenges, when life doesn't seem to be going how we expect, perhaps like Jacob here, it can be so easy to doubt God, to think that God's not trustworthy. But trusting God means listening to what God says, not to the doubts. And one thing I like to do sometimes is just say a short prayer, God, help me believe you, not the doubt. God, help me believe you, not the doubt. And so that's one thing we can do. We can ask God to help us trust him. But of course, more than that, God doesn't ask us to trust him detached from action. It's not like God says something and doesn't give any actions to back up. Because what we actually see as the rest of the passage continues is that God has given reason why he is trustworthy. And so Jacob here can look at what God has already done and he can watch what God is still doing. And so as the passage continues, Jacob looks, can look at what God has already done and in particular, how God has begun to fulfill those lob promises. In verse 5, Jacob kind of packs up his whole family and he heads off to Egypt. And as he does, we're given that big long list of Jacob's sons and their sons. And we might wonder, well, what's that about? Why is that there? But what it's showing us is that God has already begun to fulfill that promise of offspring. What started with two people, Abraham and Sarah, has grown in just three generations. And did you see how big it's grown to? Have a look at verse 20, chapter 47, verse 27. Uh, 46, sorry, verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. From two to 70 in just three generations. Now, if you're anything like me, you want to go and count up all the names that it lists there to check whether it comes to 70 or not. Uh, don't worry, you don't need to do it. I've already done it three times and it does come to 70. Um, but at 70, how incredible is that? Now, you might have noticed, it actually gives two numbers, 66 and 70. So what's, what's going on there? But... It's the number of 70 is all of Jacob's descendants, but remember Ur, Anon, and Adad already? 
and the two sons of Joseph are already in Egypt. So we take away those four, and that's where we get 66. So that's why there's those two numbers. But it's an incredible thing from two to 70. What started with Abraham, an old man, uh, who might perhaps rival our, our dear brother Barry Dimlo with, uh, with years under the belt. He's old, but he's also got no kids, and he's got an old wife who's also barren. And so if you were going to pick a fertility champion, you would not pick Abraham. And yet, God goes to Abraham, and he promises more than the stars in the sky, I'll give you that many kids. And here... We see the start of that. And there's actually significance in the number 70. It's a number of completeness. And what it's meant to be showing us is that things are going well. Things are well on their way. We're not quite at stars in the sky yet, but things are going along well. And so Jacob can look at that. He can look at what God is doing. Look at what God has done and see that God is trustworthy. And just like Jacob... We can do that too. We can look at what God has done. Now, there's all sorts of things we might be able to look at in our lives. We can look to the relational blessings that God's given us, church and family and friends. We can look at all the material blessings that God's given us, food and shelter and jobs. But the singular greatest thing we can look to is the cross, where God gave us His Son, the most precious gift there is to die on the cross for you and for me. We can look at that and we can see God is trustworthy. Look at what God has done. The greatest display of love ever given. And so, of course, what that means is it reminds us just the importance of God's Word, where we see about the cross, where we see what God has done. See, as we sit under God's Word here at church, as we meet in our growth groups throughout the week, as we read the Bible for ourselves, as we're doing all of that, we're being reminded, this is what God has done. I was chatting to one older man from our church this week, and he told me about he and his wife's schedule. They get up at 6.30 in the morning, and they spend an hour in Bible reading and prayer. Then they have breakfast. Then they spend another hour in Bible reading and prayer. And then after dinner, they do another hour of Bible reading and prayer. And I was, I was quite humbled by that. I was like, oh, that sounds great. But it was, he said to me, it's just such an encouragement to see what God has done. And just helps him to trust God, to know this is who God is. But it's also helpful to remember that often the Bible thinks corporately. Uh, we live in such an individualistic society, we think of only ourselves. But the picture of the Bible is that we're a body where there's a corporateness to things. And so it is worth reflecting. How can I help and be helped by others here at church? How can I help and be helped by my brothers and sisters here? I was chatting to one friend from another church recently, and she was saying how she regularly talks with a young mum. And this young mum, life is so chaotic, so stressful with the, the uh, difficulties of a young baby that this young mum just struggles to find time to read the Bible. And so what my friend does is she'll call this young mum regularly. They'll chat on the phone. They'll just catch up. They'll enjoy each other's company. And then my friend will share one thing with this young mum that my friend's been reading in the Bible recently. And just such a great way to to help each other, to look at what God has done. In different seasons, we're going to have different amounts of time to spend in God's Word. But it's so helpful then in those seasons where it's difficult to help each other. 
Uh, one of the highlights for me each week is uh, I meet with a couple of, a couple of men one-to-one and we, we read the Bible together, we pray for each other, and it's often one of the highlights of my week to meet together and to read the Bible together and to see what God has done together. And so it's, it's worth thinking, well, why not, if there's meant to be a corporateness to us, why not see if there's someone here at church that you could read the Bible with? that together you could look at what God has done. Might not be every week, might be every month, if that's what your schedule allows. But have a look around and see if there's someone that you could do this with. See, if we want to live well while waiting, then we need to look at what God has already done. And the best way to do that is in His Word. But of course, it's not just what God has done in the past, it's also what God is doing now. And so we can watch that. And that's what happens with Jacob as they enter the land. Jacob and Joseph reunite. And imagine what a reunion that must have been. A father who thought for decades that his son was dead, meeting that son. And you can just imagine there would have been tears of joy and laughing and I'm sure their cheeks hurt from smiling so much. And after they've had this great reunion, Joseph then tells them what to say to Pharaoh. Are they to say they're shepherds? And they got their flocks and they're looking for somewhere to, to pasture their flocks. And when Pharaoh hears this, he'll tell them to settle in Goshen, which is the best pasture land. Now, it is worth noting a little bit later, it's called Ramses. The difference there is just a different name for the same area, a little bit like how I might say I live in Burwood or I live in the eastern suburbs. Just a different way to describe the same place. But that's what they're to do. And then in chapter 47, verses 1 to 6, things go exactly as Joseph said. And we can't help but see God's hand at work here. For strangers to come into the land and to be given the best part of the land can be nothing other than God at work. And so Jacob can watch that. And he can also watch what happens next because as Jacob and Pharaoh meet, we see the the meeting of the most powerful leader in the world and a small father of a nomadic family of shepherds. Leader of two million people meets leader of 70. It will be a little bit like the Queen Elizabeth meeting my grandma. The Queen, one of the most powerful people, the most influential people on earth, meeting a little old lady with no, no power, no influence, At that meeting, who would you expect to be the one in power? Who would you expect to be the one handing out the blessings? Well, of course, the queen's the one that's more powerful. So, of course, we'd expect the queen to hand out the blessing to my grandma. But imagine how ridiculous, how crazy it would be if the queen asked my grandma for a blessing. And yet, that is exactly what happens here. Pharaoh the leader of two million people, asks for a blessing of Jacob, the father of 70. And not just once, but twice, verses 7 to 10. I think what we see going on here is a little fulfillment of the blessing, the blessing promise that God made, that through one of Abraham's descendants, he would bless the nations. And so Jacob can watch that and see that God is still at work, working to fulfill his promises. But of course, it doesn't stop there as the story continues. We then find out about the Egyptians. The famine hits hard and they need food. And so they give up their money. Then they give up their livestock. And then they give up their land and their freedom. 
all so that they don't starve. And in verses 20 to 21, it makes clear that this is all of Egypt. It stresses this is all of Egypt, except for the priests who seem to have their own system set up for food. All of Egypt sells themselves to Pharaoh in slavery. Now, uh, we might look at that and perhaps think, this is cruel exploitation. Why doesn't Joseph just give them the food? Why does he make them sell themselves? But it's, it's important to remember that that's not the way the Old Testament sees it. For example, in Leviticus chapter 25, it's seen as a great act of charity to buy the land of the destitute and to take them on as a worker, that is, as a slave. See, being slaves in this way was often seen as preferable to living uh, by yourself. It meant there was certainty and there was security and there's stability. And so actually what we find looking through history is often people who are in this kind of slavery, when offered the option to be free, will reject it. We've got to uh, kind of remember here that the slavery this is talking about is different the kind of slavery we saw in more modern times, the Atlantic slave trades, which were a terrible thing. But rather, Old Testament slavery in this sense is at its best, it means a job for life with a benevolent employer. And that certainly seems to be how the Egyptians view it. In verse 25, they say this, you have saved our lives, we'll be in bondage to Pharaoh. See, we're to see this as a great blessing. God has saved the Egyptians through his servant Joseph. If it wasn't for Joseph, they would have starved to death. This is God's fulfillment here. It's an even bigger fulfillment of the B promise, blessing. Through one of Abraham's descendants, God has blessed the nations by saving them from starvation and from death. And so Jacob can watch that. Jacob can watch how God is still working and know that God is trustworthy. And especially so then when we see the fate of the Israelites. Did you see what's happening with them? Now this is what it says, verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. They're going from strength to strength, from blessing to blessing. And Jacob can watch that. He can watch how God is working and he can take heart. God is faithful to his people and to his promises. And what this all shows us then is that living well while we wait involves watching what God is still doing today. I think sometimes in the, the slog of day-to-day -day kind of work, it's easy to forget that, it's easy to, to let that slide, it's easy to overlook the ways that God is at work, the blessings both big and small that God has given us. But perhaps I think one of the best ways to be reminded of that is to, buy, to talk to each other, to be encouraged by each other. Last weekend, we had the youth leaders uh, retreat where our youth group leaders, we went away and we spent the weekend away together and we prayed together and we planned for the rest of the year together and we had some fun together. We ate uh, chocolate and played maracana. It was a great weekend away. But one of the highlights of the weekend for me was hearing how God has been working. We shared with each other what we've been encouraged by this year, how we've seen God at work this year, and we praised God for that. But we're so encouraging to be reminded that God is still at work even today in both big things and little things. And we are a church family here, and so we're to encourage each other and spur each other on. And so why not tap into that? Why not, after the service today, ask someone, how have you seen 
God at work in your life recently? How has God been working in your life recently? I think that would be a great encouragement for us if we did that. And if we did that every week, imagine how encouraging it would be to be reminded that God is still at work even today. That's what living well while we wait involves. And then the final part of living well while we wait is remembering that this world is not our home. As Jacob nears the end of his days, he calls for Joseph to come. And he gets Joseph to put his hand on his thigh. That's just talking about a kind of a, a, a weighty vow or weighty promise. And did you see what it is that he makes Joseph promise him? It's that Joseph will bury Jacob in the promised land. Have a look at verses, chapter 47, verses 29 and 30. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. Why is this what Jacob makes Joseph promise so, so, so strongly? Well, it's because he knows that as good as things might be in Egypt, that land is not their home. See, his home is the promised land, the special land that God has promised them. And so far here in Egypt, things are going pretty well, things are going good, and they'll actually continue to go well until the end of Genesis. Of course, when Exodus starts, things are not going well. But until the end of Genesis, things are going well for God's people here. And so the danger then is that they'll start to feel comfortable there. They'll start to think, hey, actually, this land is pretty good. I don't know if we need the promised land. But Jacob knows that that land is not their home. And so he makes Joseph promise to bury him in the promised land. I think it's for two reasons, partly because he just wants to be buried in the promised land, in the land that's his home, but I think he also does that to remind future generations of that fact. Hey, this is not your home, we belong elsewhere. And don't you find that that's just like us here on earth? It's so important to remember that this world is not our home. Our home is Revelation 21 that future city where we will worship God forever, where we will praise God forever. That is the land we belong to, a land far better than this land. But don't you find it so easy to forget that? Don't you find it so easy to get comfortable in this world and to forget that this actually isn't our home? I mean, we have everything we want. We have food and family and friends. We have shelter and stability and security. We often want for nothing, we're comfortable and we're wealthy. But what this reminds us is that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how wealthy we become, no matter how successful we might be, no matter how much we might enjoy life here, this world is not our home. And so to live well while we wait means remembering that. I was uh, reading this week about a, a man called Robert McChaney. Uh, he was a Scottish minister in the 1800s. He became a minister at just 22 years of age. He actually died, sadly, seven years later at 29 years of age. But even though his life was so short, he made a huge impact for God's kingdom. And it was, in part at least, because he knew of this truth, that this world is not his home. 
And his pattern of the day, or pattern to start each day, was to start in prayer and in God's word. And he described this pattern of morning devotions as a means of, quote, giving the eye the habit of looking upward all day. I'll say it again, it's giving the eye the habit of looking upward all day. Uh, he knew that his thoughts and his mind wouldn't drift up to heaven in the afternoon or the evening unless he'd started the day by looking there. And so that's where he began each day, in God's Word, by looking to heaven. And as I read that, I thought it was such helpful advice. And so it's worth us thinking then, is there a way we could do that? Uh, one guy I know of lives by the motto of Bible before phone in the morning when he wakes up. Bible before phone, he'll read the Bible before he goes on his phone. Another guy I know has the motto of no Bible, no breakfast. So if he wants to eat breakfast, he's got to read the Bible. If he doesn't read the Bible, he doesn't get to eat breakfast. And there's a million other ways we could do it. But it's worth thinking about. Are there ways we could set our eyes on heaven at the start of each day? That we could remember, this world is not our home. We belong to a different world. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to live life well. And so at the start, we did wonder, well, how do we live while waiting for God's promises? And we've seen that it means we trust what God says by listening to God and not to the doubt. We've seen that we look to what God has done, particularly by opening up God's Word. We watch what God is still doing by sharing and encouraging each other. And we remember that this world is not our home by setting our eyes on heaven. And so as we leave here today, as we go out into the world this week, as we carry on our daily lives, living while waiting, I hope that this passage will shape how we live while we wait. As we face the highs and the lows, as we face the good times and the bad, the joys and the struggles of this life, uh, may we remember that we're awaiting something truly spectacular, an eternity in heaven with our gracious Lord and Saviour. But until then, what will your life of waiting look like? I'm going to pray and ask God to help us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the way it shows us that you are, uh, you do keep your promises, that you haven't let Jacob down and you won't let us down. And we thank you that you are a good God who is trustworthy. And we thank you that we can particularly see that by what you have done on the cross in Jesus. We thank you that we can look to that greatest act of love ever and know that you are trustworthy. But we also thank you that we can look at uh, what you're still doing today uh, would you encourage us with that? Help, would you help us to encourage each other uh, with that? And would you help us, we ask, remember that this world is not our home. We belong to a far better world. Please help us set our eyes on that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.